Before I start the podcast here, I just want to give a quick shout out to Paul Dominic, who you'll remember as a previous Fox Den podcast guest. Paul is a real aficionado of Stoicism and even did a course on journaling the Stoic way. He often shares Stoic writing prompts on Twitter. And it was Paul who alerted me that Donald Robertson was actually looking for podcast guest spots. So big shout out to Paul for that. This is another episode of The Fox Stand, and I'm very excited to have Donald Robertson, the acclaimed author of How to Live Like a Roman Emperor, all about Marcus Aurelius, our most famous and documented Stoic. Uh, he's a cognitive behavior psychotherapist. He lives in Canada now, originally from Ayrshire, Scotland. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Ayrshire. Yeah. Where? Yeah. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> Ayrshire. Yeah. Um, he's been researching Stoicism and applying it to his work for 20 years. Um, founding member, one of the founding members of Modern Stoicism, which is such a wonderful website. It's a treasure trove of resources for anyone looking to get into Stoicism. Um, written so many different books, including some that are geared towards psychotherapists. And of course, the article that he and I were discussing before I hit record, Stoic Philosophy as a Cognitive Behavior Therapy. So. Donald, I want to jump back in right before we were recording. You were saying that the the kind of peer response, people out there, we could say the lay person uh-huh. out there really takes to stoicism. But for some reason, uh-huh. it seemed that the psychotherapeutic institutions have kind of been slow to incorporate that into training. So let's dive into that. What are your thoughts? Now, in your article, you address it a little bit, but let's just open it up and talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it surprised me, you know, when I first started getting into Stoicism, it was really a nerdy thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't I didn't have any little Stoic friends at the time. I was just, you know, everybody thought it was just one of those obscure things. And then after a few years, it kind of became strangely trendy. And now it's like a thing, as people say, there's big Stoicism groups and we have an annual conference. And I really never expected that to happen at all. Yeah. So I was kind of blown away by that. But I originally thought, we could get psychotherapists more interested in this subject. And weirdly, they seem to have kind of lagged behind a little bit, the, the wave of popular interest in Stoicism, which kind of surprised me. And maybe this is a bit glib, but, you know, my, my, my first reaction is maybe they don't have time to read the books or something like that. They're like, you know, I think some of the, in all honesty, some of the CBT practitioners I know genuinely are maybe a kind of a bit too busy reading research and reading clinical textbooks and stuff. And maybe they just don't really feel they've got time to delve into some of the self-help books and some of the classics and stuff. That's a, that's my first attempt at an explanation because it did puzzle me. I thought they would be, you know, jumping in the bandwagon as it were. Yeah. That's a, that's a wonderful idea there. Um, I think another reason, and you got on, got, if, if anybody, by the way, wants this article, I'm going to attach a link to it. If you don't have a Medium account, you can sign up for one and read it. Uh, you get like something like three or three to five free Medium articles a month on that website. And so people can easily go read what, what we're talking about just to get that out there. And again, I'll attach the link in the podcast. But uh, one of the reasons that you discussed that stoicism might be less appealing to, to psychotherapy or, or anything like that is that it might be the um the verb of say stoic or the, oh, the adjective yes. that it that this idea of lo- lowercase s right not the stoics as a proper noun but sto being stoic as uh-huh. being emotionally unavailable closed off and that mm-hmm. psychotherapists may view mm-hmm. that 
as antithetical to our mission, which is interesting because if you if you study if you if you study stoicism at all a little bit, you'll see that it's really a values-driven psychotherapy. And that's such a big thing now. We're actually coming back around to that. Yes. Are you familiar with ACT, like acceptance and yep. commitment therapy? I don't know. Yep, yep. And behavioral activation. There's like there are several third wave approaches that place a lot of emphasis on and values clarification isn't even a new idea. It was kind of the they act gags, but that was around in the 1970s. It was trendy. And then they, they've kind of um, reintroduced it, as it were. But right now, it's like a hot topic again in psychotherapy. And what they call a value, which is an intrinsic quality of action and character, seems to me a weirdly convoluted way of just referring to what uh, any student of philosophy would immediately recognize is, is arity or virtue in classical philosophy. That's the whole point of virtue ethics in classical philosophy, that they're talking about a quality of our character which is something that's intrinsically under our control rather than investing value in external things that are merely the outcome of our actions. And now that's a trendy kind of state-of-the-art concept in third-wave uh, behavioral therapy. And I, yeah. I read that and I thought, this seems strangely familiar to me from undergraduate philosophy classes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was always in Stoicism. The weird thing is this, that Beck and Ellis were kind of influenced by the Stoics and they took these bits of Stoicism and then they left out a bunch of things that now became trendy several decades later in psychotherapy, but yeah. nobody mentioned the fact that there were already major themes in Stoicism to begin with. We could have got all this stuff from the Stoics back the, the first time round, back in the 1960s yeah. and 70s. So my view on it is I think that they picked up what they needed to use at the clinics mm -hmm. and, to, and they, they made it this atomized, they took this, this, these approaches, okay, these exercises, but they took them out of the comprehensive context and they use them as these atomized little interventions, doses of stoicism, yeah. right? And so culture then had the vestiges of values and, and kind of valuing virtue and wisdom. And I think we've gotten further away from that. And so the comprehensive stoic framework is maybe what we need for that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, gosh, this is a huge subject. Yeah, um, it is. I'll, I'll just say, well, so I feel like I'm being a bit superficial and just throwing a thing a few things out there, but I think we'll just have to kind of approach it from several angles. Of course. So one of them is, geez, I think psychotherapists were scared of this initially. So um, if you're a psychotherapist, one thing that you kind of have, that you're taught that you mustn't really do is indoctrinate your client into a, a set of values and a worldview, right? Well, stoicism is a worldview and a set of values, right? Yeah. So it would be kind of like getting people into Marxism or Christianity or something like that. Right. You need to kind of draw a line somewhere. If you're a therapist now, if you if you look closely at what psychotherapists do, it's actually a little bit of a gray area because you know often psychotherapists are subtly indoctrinating the clients into certain metaethical views, you know, and all the value stuff in ACT is a particular metaethical view. It's very much about like encouraging the client to adopt a, a, a an ethical perspective. Very and Eastern, always, very Buddhist, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's always been a controversial thing. It's always been supposedly a no go thing for therapists to do that, right? And but then if you want to instill generalized resilience in clients, you know, it stands to reason that the way to do that is for the clients to go beyond the consulting room and invest in these ideas in a much broader and more general way, whereby it becomes a whole philosophy of life. So there's a difference between a bunch of techniques, like in a, or therapy is more than that, but it's kind of moving in that direction and generalizing the whole thing so it becomes part of your identity and way of life. 
And so there are professional reasons, ethical reasons why therapists have kind of hesitated to do that before. But at the same time, you know, that's what the people want. You know, and uh, and also nowadays we we're more interested in prevention rather than cure. You know, resilience building is kind of the holy grail of psychotherapy. We've gradually realised, and uh, it's dawning on people that if you want to do that, then you need to reconceptualise the whole thing more in terms of a, a philosophy of life rather than a, a group of techniques or a, a, an intervention. That's absolutely what I've experienced as as a practitioner. So that question of why, of, well, why should I care about this? Or why does it not matter what people think of me? So if you have someone whose entire identity is built on online media or getting validation, it's like, okay, so when you tell them not to, to, that that it's not the the end all be all to get any sort of rejection, we have to, the, the fragility of the ego has to be supplemented by resilience and virtue. And and those have become kind of, in any words that in, involve sort of growth or development can be kind of overwhelming. And, and psychotherapy mm-hmm. now um, is moving toward that stuff. But for a while, I think that, that perhaps there was this emphasis on everything being about validation and rapport, which again, those are great. But those are really a starting point. And so I think there was a real Rogerian bias. So a lot of people, so for people who don't know your story, um, you came to psychotherapy through an amazingly philosophical route of studying philosophy first and then saying, okay, I want to apply this. This is very stodgy and academic, I, the, the, the way philosophy is done in the academy. I want to go do philosophy. Well, as we're talking a bit more about psychotherapy, I'll say some things that I often don't say in interviews about my own background, but show that I, I started off studying psychoanalytic therapy. I was really into Freud. And nice. I was really young and I was super into R.D. Lyme. who's also Scottish, right? Yeah. And I, the type of therapy that I got interested in at first was existentialism and phenomenology, because I thought, you know, the combination of existential phenomenology and psychoanalysis held out some promise as a philosophical approach to therapy. And then I guess one of the reasons, that just didn't really work out for me because, again, to put it very simply, um, I did my master's degree in, in John Paul Sartre in psychoanalysis, actually. But they, I just felt it was too complicated. And I like the other therapists that I spoke to that were trying to draw on existentialism, it seemed to me the philosophy was so abstract and also not even that coherent. The, the therapists were just all interpreting it and what, it seemed like a bit of a free-for-all. Like, so people were just kind of interpreting it in whatever way they wanted, it seemed to me, because, you know, if you take something like Sartre or Heidegger and you try and apply it to therapy, you know, there's such a, a, it's such an abstract thing and such a complex thing. You know, it seems to me you're kind of left to your own as to what does this actually look like in practice when you sit down and, and try and use it with a client. Whereas ironically, classical philosophy appeals to many people because it's, it's simpler. Like it's more down to earth. It's, it's easy. It's much easier to see what Socrates, the Stoic, would say in practice about how to do therapy. And they give us a bunch of fairly clearly defined techniques as well. So that's, I think, in part why there's been the renaissance of interest in Stoicism. And it was a few years before it really it kind of gradually dawned on me that the other option, the, other, the more obvious option in a way, would be to look at Stoicism and how that relates to cognitive therapy. So I went from existentialism and psychoanalysis to Stoicism and CBT. And it was in part very simply because when you study undergraduate philosophy, one of the few major schools of ancient philosophy that they don't bother studying is the Stoics. 
Right. And there's an irony about that as well, which is kind of cool. Like the reason they don't study it is because academic philosophers typically say that the Stoics took concepts and ideas from earlier philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. And all those Stoic guys really did was develop the practical application of them. And we wouldn't be interested in that. Like, you know, so we just study the kind of abstract theory, right? So why would we bother studying the stories? All they do is actually put it into practice and turn it into a workable philosophy of life. That's, that's not what we do in, in the universities. So they didn't bother studying the stories. And that's ironically precisely why ordinary people are really interested in the stories, because what they give them is a lot of stuff that's ultimately goes back to Socrates and, and some other earlier thinkers, but a much more practical version of it, a much more applied version of it. And that's why therapists also are particularly drawn to the Stoics. Yeah, that is well said. I, the, the packaging of Stoicism, what makes it appealing and precisely, yeah, why people who want to push the bounds and carve out a niche in writing their own synthesis of different concepts are not going to be drawn to it as much. You can't really carve out as much of a... Um, authorly niche doing something that's more applied versus theoretical. So I can understand why the academy wouldn't, why academia wouldn't really uh, be interested in it, but why the psychotherapeutic school, schools and training institutions are not packaging this as something to use because something like dialectical mm. behavior therapy, I facilitate dialectical behavior therapy groups with clients through my agency. And the thing is, I was just thinking of this last night, the idea of wise mind is a big concept, right? And it's emotion mind plus, plus logic mind. Too much of one or the other can be very stilting of someone's personality. It can, can make you into kind of a caricature almost. And it seems like these sort of exercises of imagining how to respond to something appropriately to someone else, but respecting your own boundaries. That's the same kind of modeling, Donald, that you talk about that Marcus Aurelius would do with his mentor figures. He would imagine how they would behave. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's an odd thing, but the Stoics really do have, you know, when I first writing about, started writing about this subject, there were some academics and some psychotherapists as well who really sneered about the whole idea of, of uh, Stoicism and you know, a renaissance of interest in it. And they would say, well, you guys are just projecting all the psychotherapy stuff. These psychotherapists, they said, have come along and they've hijacked stoicism. They've kind of projected all this psychotherapy stuff into it. And I, I don't mean to be rude to the people who said that, but I just thought that shows a shocking level of ignorance of the classical literature. Absolutely. Right? Because the, the concept of philosophy, uh, the medical model of philosophy, for want of a better way of putting it, is pervasive in classical Greek and Hellenistic philosophy, right? And Socrates talked about philosophy as a talking therapy, as a form of medicine for the mind. They even use the word therapia, like therapy. Chrysippus, one of the founders of Stoicism, wrote a book called On Therapeutics, on the therapeutics of the psyche. They called it psychotherapy. Marcus Aurelius, at the beginning of the meditations, says that his Stoic mentor, Eunius Rusticus, Spotty was grateful because Rusticus spotted that he required moral correction and therapia, like Stoic therapy. So it's not a projection from the modern perspective. The Stoics were steeped in, it was a cliche to them to refer to philosophy as a therapy for the psyche. And they wrote whole books dedicated to that aspect of it. And the other reason why the Stoics is that 
Socrates kind of really popularized this idea. And then the cliche goes that after he died, there were 10 separate schools of Socratic philosophy. Right. Uh, some, the most famous one being Plato's Academy, but there were others as well. And then the Stoics, like a generation or two later. And uh, the, the Stoics were the, the Socratic uh, a branch of philosophy that chose to focus more than any of the others on this therapeutic aspect of Socrates and really develop that side of it. So that's why the Stoics, it's not a coincidence. There's a reason, a very simple reason, why they would be particularly of interest to modern psychotherapists. And also, I guess we should spell out something that you and I are maybe taking for granted a little bit. Please. Which is that Albert Ellis yes. in the 1950s told all of his clients, as far as I'm aware, he certainly implies that he said this to all of them, as standard in the socialization or the orientation phase of therapy and the initial therapy sessions, he said, read this quote from Epictetus, uh, one of the main Stoic teachers. It's passage five of the Enchiridion, a handbook of Epictetus that says, it's not things or events that upset us, but our opinions about them. Right. And Ellis taught that because it encapsulated what he called the ABC model. And really it's broader than that. It encapsulates what all cognitive behavioral therapists would refer to the cognitive model of emotion because it's saying it's not like our emotions are determined not exclusively but to a crucial extent in a, in a crucial manner our emotions are determined by corresponding beliefs so Alice, uh, there comes a time in therapy the way i explain it to people in in this in very simple language is when you're a therapist clients come and see you and in the initial sessions, they start telling you all the terrible things that are going on in their life because of their anger, fear, or sadness, or whatever. Right. So I've got this anger, and it's causing me all these problems. It's damaged my relationship. It's caused me problems at work. It's made my life a misery. And the client will tell you their story about that, right, in the initial session. And then often, you know, at some point, something along these lines will happen. The client will be listening to themselves telling this story about how really unhelpful these feelings are that they're suffering from. And that obviously is going to motivate them to want to change it. But then they'll kind of disavow the ability to change it because they'll say at some point, but, you know, it's just, it's just how I, I know it's wrong. I know it's causing me all these problems. It's just how I feel, right? And right. Ellis used to say to them, but it's not just how you feel. It's also how you think. Like, because feelings aren't completely separate kind of reified entities. No. They're bound up with our thinking. So if I am anxious, it's probably because I've got an underlying belief that says that something catastrophic is about to happen and I won't be able to cope with it. And I might be wrong on several levels about that. I might be exaggerating things. I might be neglecting information. I might just be simply making mistaken assumptions. So the client who has panic attacks, like, for example, in many, but not all cases, might feel that they're going to have a heart attack and die. And they might be simply mistaken about the physiology of that. Like, it's just a, a mistaken interpretation of the sensations. And if they really, really realized that and assimilated that information, they would uh, undermine the reason for their anxiety. They would feel less anxious. Um, and so disproving, carrying out behavioral experiments, uh, to disprove some of these anxiety-causing beliefs is integral to cognitive therapy. But Socrates and the Stoics realized this, and it changes everything when you introduce a cognitive model of emotion. And, and one of the reasons it's always, like many philosophical insights, as we call them, um, a number of philosophers have noted that often philosophical insights come from the fact that 
there's kind of a, an implicit philosophy in the very language and culture that we, we use. And our language and culture um, contains a, a theory of the mind that separates thoughts and feelings. And, and that's, you know, like wrong. Like we, we have a flawed uh, philosophy as a, a culture, the way we talk about feelings and the way that we talk about our minds often is kind of clunky and doesn't really correspond with how these things are experienced subjectively and how they actually function. Um, so it takes some reflection to cut through the misconceptions embedded in our culture in the same way that we're all Cartesian. We all talk about the mind as if it was separate from the body, but in fact, on reflection, we realize that it's not quite as simple as that. And so undergraduate philosophy students spend years picking apart Cartesianism because you can't escape it. It's in the very language that we use. You know, you're never going to get away from it completely. In the same way, this idea that thoughts are over here, feelings are over there. Someone who focuses too much on reason might become like an egghead and overly rational. And they're not really dealing with the feelings that are over here somewhere. And the Stoics said, that's just crazy talk, right? Because thoughts and feelings are just two sides of the same coin. To think is to feel and vice versa. Like all of the feelings you experience are enmeshed with your thoughts. And when you change your thoughts, you tend to change your feelings. Although I'll just step in and preempt a criticism, which is that there are kind of precursors of emotion or certain forms of emotion that right. are precognitive. So obviously the example that the Stoics themselves give two and a half thousand years ago is if somebody ran up behind you and went, boo, and you jump out of your skin, it's difficult to view that as being cognitively mediated. Yes. Think, well, what was the belief there? Like, you know, that's more like a reflex reaction. If I ran up behind my uh, Labrador or whatever, my, you know, uh, my retriever and go, boo, it'll jump out of the skin as well. And I don't know what belief it has there that activated its anxiety. It's a, a reflex right, light reaction. But that's kind of the exception that proves the rule. Like, most of the time when we're struggling with our emotions, they're completely intertwined with beliefs and values. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, that you did preemptively hit one of the big, I think, objections to stoicism. So I, I focus on working with trauma clients in my practice. And so I see a lot of people who have PTSD. And I want to go this route. I want to talk about what stoicism would look like for that. I think you get on a, a hit on a lot of the kind of elements of that in your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. You even get on chronic pain, which I love that section. But um, to talk about the, the, the pseudo, the proto passions. I, I made sure to write that term down in my notes here because sometimes it's useful to mention the jargon because people think, well, the Stoics ignored that. And, you, and their response is, no, they, they were perfectly crystal clear about it. They even had the they name didn't. for it. They called them propatheia. Like, they didn't what did they it call it? It was part of their theory. Yep. No, what was that term? The proto theory? The... Pro, uh, propatheia. Like, okay. Propatheiae. Like, that means uh, proto-passions. It's kind of yes. actually hard. Part of the problem is sometimes it's hard to translate into English. They also, in the Latin, the, the Latin term means first movements. But Seneca says it's kind of like, a, his example is interesting. He says it's like if someone went to poke their finger in your eye and you blinked. He said, we have emotions that are like that. So he's clearly describing what we would call a reflex. Uh, or like uh, what... Aaron Beck would call the automatic phase of thoughts and feelings in cognitive therapy. So there's, and, and if we want to dig even deeper, 
we might say that some of those are maybe precognitive and some of them are maybe determined by underlying schemas that are tacit or unconscious. So that maybe there's a cognitive element, but not one that's under our conscious control at first. So even there, we might be able to distinguish further between automatic responses that have some cognitive element and ones that don't. But the Stoics and even Beck would say that the, the important thing is what happens next. You know, once we've kind of got those responses, we then have to make a decision about how we react to them. And the feelings and actions and thoughts that we have in response are very much tied up with our beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. No matter what happened to you, no matter how anxiously your nervous system's wired at this point in time, you're still responsible, unfortunately, for fixing it. So, mm. and, I ta- and I tell clients that it's, it's about the fact that the, the validation, the therapeutic relationship are paramount because that's where trust is built. And then determining where you want to go with changing your belief system and regaining your autonomy. And each theoretical modality has that implicitly built into it. It's, it's that stoicism is much more blatant with it and says, okay, these are things you don't have control over. What was done in the mm. past to you? What, what kind of abusive household you come from? But what you have control of now. Let's talk about that. Yes, let's talk about it. Talk about the, this, the dichotomy of control, right? Yes. Because I, I've mentioned this to some people, and I'd like to talk to, uh, to a therapist about this, right? Please. So we, what we usually say is, oh, isn't it funny how there's all this stuff in stoicism, and it was kind of assimilated into CBT. So yeah. this idea is not things that upset us, but our thinking that became central to cognitive therapy. But the other remarkable thing is there's a bunch of things in stoicism that are obviously really clear, really simple, arguably, and this is an odd thing to say, arguably have a kind of almost intuitive validity to them. Like the dichotomy of control seems like a no-brainer in therapy, of course. As soon as you say it to clients, if you say, ah, it's really important to be clear about the distinction between what's under your direct control and what isn't, a lot of people go, yeah, you're right. I do that. I'm always getting worried about things that I don't really have any control over. So most people immediately recognize there's validity to this idea and we're always blurring the boundary, even though it seems like a truism. Who in their right mind would try to control things that they know that they don't control? Well, apparently we all do it all the time. Temporary you know, madness, like, right? Temporary madness. It's the craziest thing in the world. We're all doing it all the time. Of course. And, it, and as many people will say, the first sentence of Epictetus's handbook says, some things are up to us, other things are not. Well, that's a dumb thing to say, right? I mean, surely that's like saying, you know, some things are big and some things are small. What, like, that's a, the most banal observation in the world that you could make. But everybody ignores it and does the opposite, Right. So the Stoics want us to, to really drive this message home. And yet that, although that idea is implicit in many ways in all modalities of therapy and, and very much impl- it's there in CBT, it's striking that it's never really been put in the foreground. I mean, I'm not really aware. I mean, there are things I can point to, but I'm not really aware of any form of CBT or any form of psychotherapy that really puts that front and center. Um, in the way that the Stoics did, which is kind of surprising. Um, oh, actually, there maybe there's the person that put more emphasis on it, and this is a nerd fact. Like, so I'll, I'll, we'll just drop this in. Let's. The, in the, the 1920s, there was a, a, a form of therapy called rational or persuasion psychotherapy. Ooh. It was mainly associated with a Swiss uh, psychiatrist called Paul Dubois, and he was uh, uh, he was he's Chris, in your article. Yeah. Um, and he's a forgotten man of psychotherapy. He used to be famous, and nobody ever talks about him any, anymore. But he was into the Stoics. Now, weirdly, Ellis was into Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, 
So there's three major Stoics whose work survived today. But yeah. Ellis never mentioned Seneca, whereas Dubois was really into Seneca. And he used to give Seneca's letters to his clients to read. And Dubois was more into this idea of teaching clients to clarify the distinction between what's under their control and, and what isn't. And his therapy was very influential for like 30, 40 years. And then it just kind of like dropped out the equation altogether and everyone forgot about it. It was like a precursor of cognitive therapy. Um, and then we had to wait another decade or two for there to be a, you know, a renaissance in, in cognitive therapy again. But, yeah. you know, when I speak to therapists, so in, we talk about stoicism, they're like, oh, this dichotomy of control thing makes a lot of sense. It does. Clients relate to it. It's de- and it's also, for a CBT practitioner, the thing that boggles my mind about it is, I, I, you know, I'm very interested in, the, in RCTs. You know, I know that maybe that, maybe that some people kind of, it's a controversial debate in some ways, but maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned, a bit conservative in that respect. I really believe in randomized control trials, right? Yeah, and, and I do too. Dismantling studies and testing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think we have a moral obligation. As Absolutely. That are validated. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to be slaves to the research, but we, we no. have to take it very seriously. We can't just ignore it. And uh, so research is important. But the dichotomy, the, like, so Freud, the least, if you wanted to sit down and come up with the world's least testable form of psychotherapy, right. you'd be hard-pressed to outdo Freud in right. that regard. Right? He came up with, in many levels, an approach to therapy that was never going to be testable. And right. that means that not only do you not know whether it actually works or not, and I don't know whether it actually works or not, Freud didn't know whether it actually worked or not, and neither did any of the people that he was training. Yeah. Right? So no, he that, was a, right. that was all a bit of a mess, right? Um, and yet this idea of what if you clarify the distinction between things that are under your control and things that aren't, and then we test the effect that that has, for example, on stress. That's so simple. You could write the instructions for it in the back of a business card, right? And, you know, you could measure the extent to which people uh, believe that they're doing it at least. You can get them to evaluate their progress in applying it. You know, it's only really one basic strategy that they have to employ. It's eminently testable, right? And it ties in with some of our models of stress and anxiety as well. So I really, I'm amazed, you know, I, I, I think it's, there should be more research on dichotomy of control. Like, and we, you know, I'd be surprised in the future if therapists aren't maybe figuring out better ways to utilize that, that concept and the strategies that follow unnaturally from it. Because you, like you say, we, we kind of all know it already. It's implicit, but we don't, we don't really drag it out in the foreground and test it properly. I, I have a view on this, and it's, I think that to go psychoanalytic for just a moment, mm-hmm. a lot of therapists are extremely altruistic, which should be the case, but we mm-hmm. should also hone our capacity for critical thought, and I think sometimes conversations about the uncomfortable things that you can't change, mm-hmm. is very uncomfortable for the therapist as well. And I think there's an unconscious bias against really digging into that unless you have the personality proclivity, the the kind of temperament to do that of someone who like noticing the similarities between you and Marcus Aurelius, right? So right in your foreword, right in your introduction for listeners, um, Donald discusses how he lost his father at a young age and delved into the world of ideas and grief and mortality, just as Marcus Aurelius did. And then went into school for, you went to school for, um, for philosophy, delved into ideas first and then the application next. 
And there's a lot of therapists who dive into helping first and theory second. Other way around. Okay, I've got another one for you. I like that idea, but here's one I think that you'll like. Please. Right? I, I think as soon as you ask people to evaluate how much control they have over external things, they're confronted with the fact that they don't know for sure. There's a, they're confronted with uncertainty and ambiguity, right? And it highlights the fact that I'm not really sure how much control I've got over the outcome of some of the things that I'm trying to do. Like, I'm trying really hard to pass this exam at university. Like, how much of that is, is like, down to things that are under my direct control and how much of it is just down to whether the teacher likes me or not or, like, you know, bad luck in, in the questions that I happen to get on the day or factors that I can't control. I don't know. Like, it's kind of scary if I start to think about that. And maybe I also I have to learn to become, to develop what researchers and cognitive therapists call tolerance of uncertainty and ambiguity. Yeah. yeah. Um, at a really fundamental level, like, and, a, and a really uh, pervasive level. I love that. Yeah, ambiguity, acceptance. It, it, that's such a huge factor in helping people to overcome trauma is everything, the brain weights the, so the predictive processing model is such a big new wave of cognitive research, like Carl Friston's idea that our brain is constantly inferring and not just taking mm -hmm. in information. So we're inferring what's likely to happen and when we interpret ambiguity as threatening constantly and that we have to go into panic mode our power is really robbed from us from from our cortical thinking and we really go into that temporary madness state so mm -hmm. i like being aware okay this is this is something i may not be able to control how am i going to cope with that uncertainty what sort of um things am i gonna what what um contingencies am i going to put in place to kind of bring some of that under my power. And so it can be painful to think about what we have to do, A, and what we can't do, B. So there's two elements there, but that doesn't mean mm -hmm. we don't have to eventually come to grips with those things. Mm -hmm. And I guess the flip side of it, I mean, there's two sides to the dichotomy of control. One is, you know, learning to accept uncertainty about uh, these things and also learning to accept that some things are outside of our direct control things that everyone else seems to care a lot about yes and then but then also the flip side is learning to take more responsibility yes that's that's annoying but take responsibility yeah. and ownership for a bunch of things that previously we were kind of neglecting like our values and our emotions and the way that we respond to things you know like you know i was working with clients with anxiety it seemed to me that they were kind of they were just focusing all their energy in the wrong area sometimes they were trying to take too much control for things that they didn't really have control over right at the same time they were completely neglecting things and letting them run them all for example perseverative thought processes yes like rumination and worry we now know that we have more voluntary control over them than people had previously assumed right but clients will say well i can't control my worry and this is i one of my favorite approaches to therapy is that adrian wells's metacognitive therapy and a, an integral part of that is literally just asking the clients from zero to 10 or from zero to hundred percent, how much do you believe that you have control over your worrying? And people who have pathological worry, like generalized anxiety disorder, will usually believe that they have no control or, or a negligible amount of control over their worrying. But we can prove to them that actually they can take control over it. Like it's a high level strategic cognitive process that you can actually, to some extent, stop doing or detach yourself from. You know, it takes time. And by definition, that means that you can interrupt it like, and go and do other things instead. Like, so people massively underestimate how much control they have over some of the things that are going on in their head. 
But equally, like, you know, the, they'll be trying to ignore, suppress, block out automatic thoughts and feelings that they should just let be. Why? Because they're not under voluntary control. They're banging their head against their wall, like trying to struggle with those things too much and then ignoring the stuff that's going on over here that they could easily be doing something about. Yeah, 100%. I think people have to learn the paradoxical nature of cognition that the more you focus on something and the more uh, credence you give it as a worry, the more vivid it becomes. And so if it's not life-threatening, you viewing it as something that you like pa- pass through mm-hmm. and that you allow to come up and come through. And this, we're talking about mindfulness now. It goes back mm-hmm. to that, but it goes back to that. It's like, if you don't have stoicism or a, or a framework, why be mindful? It's like, okay, because it helps you in the moment. Okay, why is it a good? And right there, you've already mm-hmm. just taken apart, like you, there's no answer to that question like the the why is something that a lot of psychotherapies might not answer because they're basically a, a toolbox and you don't know the reason why the tools were made you just kind of have these things that you're going to throw at problems and it doesn't get to the virtue or wisdom that stoicism does it like why should you not care that your selfie didn't get as many likes as you think it should have right that's mm-hmm. answered by something like stoicism versus um, only kind of an atom and CBT. I want to give CBT mm-hmm. credit. Um, I, I think people, the application of CBT though, could use a lot more refining. And I think that's where a lot of your work comes in. I'll tell you where it really becomes obvious what the difference is, right? Right. So, I'll give you a little example, a glib example in a way. So a cognitive therapist, so the client might say this, my heart uh, beating fast is uh, the tachycardia is going to, it's going to kill me. I'm going to have a heart attack and die. And the cognitive therapist might say, well, these are symptoms of anxiety. You know, I can show you some information about that. We can induce those feelings and take them away again. Like, you know, and uh, you can read about other people that have been through the same experiences and how it hasn't killed them, but it feels like it's a heart attack that they're experiencing. It's just a misinterpretation of bodily sensations. So the cognitive therapist might challenge the belief that the, uh, the sensations uh, and indicate a threat uh, of death. The Stoics would say, "Well, why is death so scary? Why they do? They go one further. They say <laughs> you know, your, your problem is you're scared of dying. Why? You know why should you be so scared of dying? Why? And then they attempt to challenge that. So that doesn't mean to say that they think death is a good thing or even a neutral thing. The Stoics think that the the wise man loves life, but he's unafraid of dying. Like he's not scared of it. Why? Social distinction." Yeah, and it's a important distinction. Like they're not they're not pro death. Like you know, but they're not. They don't see it as anxiety provoking, because they kind of think, well, you could get a bit of bus tomorrow, right? And in the time of pandemic, suddenly this has become a trendy quit. Like people think, I don't know, maybe I'll get the coronavirus and it'll going to kill me. You know, but you're no more likely to. You're much more likely, clearly, to die of a hundred one other things than the coronavirus, right? So, right. you know, really, this is just an excuse to come to terms with your own mortality for 99.9% of people. Like, they, you know, the day before this even, like, the pandemic even began, people should have been having the same thoughts about, you know, like, what if I die of old age? Like, it's going to get me eventually. Like, you know, what if I get cancer? What if I die of a heart attack or something like that? You know, it's not like a big risk. It's like the coronavirus has suddenly revealed to people that the, you know, their own mortality. Cause it's an acute stressor and not yeah. a chronic one. Like repeating to... habits. Yeah. Like we know it's highlighted it. Like it's brought it into the foreground, but really it's a question that's always been there. Our own existential right. 
anxiety. And the Stoics think, you know, this is, let's go for the big one. You know, like they don't beat around the bush. They think we could, we could like deal with these other anxieties and they do. But they think if you're going to be serious about this and turn it into a philosophy of life, then we need to look at your anxiety about dying in general and, you know, the effect that that has on you. Because if you're absolutely petrified of dying, then that's probably going to exacerbate any concerns that you have about health anxiety or panic attacks or things that you, you view as dangerous or threatening. Like, that's going to be a factor. And, and somebody who accepts their own mortality is probably going to be a bit more resilient in general in that regard, because the underlying thing isn't as scary for them to begin with, arguably. So that's, but the Stoics certainly an example of them wanting to go deeper and turn it into something more philosophical is to go, let's go for death. Such a, a wonderful topic there. And now that you say that, I think that we've gotten to a, a really huge elephant in the room, and that's that any therapist who is relatively new or green, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it, for a few years ago, uh, for me, which I'm still relatively new to the field, for experienced psychotherapists, it's like that conversation of death is mm -hmm. now fraught with so much, many legal ramifications, not that we shouldn't mm -hmm. do welfare checks on clients and take their talk of suicide clearly, but the conversation uh -huh. of mortality mm -hmm. and imminent suicidal ideation are so inextricably linked now that I think it hinders conversation about mortality. What are your That's thoughts? It. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, this is one of the problems for being a therapist. And in some ways, you know, it might be that it's easier for people to, you know, address these questions of mortality in a different format and a, in yeah. a different forum than in the consulting room. You know, maybe it shouldn't be, but it is a, it is a problem for therapists. Yeah. Like, and it's one of the, it's one of the ambiguities. There are a number of areas in which therapist jobs are made almost impossible. Like, you know, it isn't a, it isn't a perfect uh, world and it's not a perfect profession. And there are things about being a therapist that kind of don't make sense or are difficult to work with. One of them is a dealing, a dealing with questions of mortality and the, you know, the therapist's responsibility when doing that. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Like some therapists will try and minimize the extent to which they do it. And maybe other therapists are a little bit too reckless like in the way that they tackle clients' anxieties about death. Because yeah. it's difficult to know how any given client is going to respond to that. Like you have to, I guess the best advice that you can give is that you have good, you know, and this is a real cliche, but I find myself always saying this about therapy. It seems always to me like a little bit of a cop-out answer, but it's my honest answer. The first thing is to make sure that you have adequate supervision. Like, and in any, any situation where you're working with a client and you kind of think, I'm not really sure whether it's appropriate to tackle this subject in this way or not, it's difficult for me to gauge how the client's going to respond. Well, right. we want a second opinion, right? That's something you definitely want to bring up with your supervisor and maybe play them recordings of the session and things because there's not an easy cut and dried answer to it, really. It's something, it's a situation where you're best getting advice like from somebody who else can bring a, a, another set of eyes to the problem. Absolutely. No, I don't think it's a, a cliche at all. I think, and, and it goes back to the idea of applied philosophy of, of kind of meeting with your fellow philosophers to see if there's something that you've missed. So having a good supervisor or consultation team is integral really. And I think therapists, and there's no, I don't like to, uh, chastise too much because I think that people are generally good natured who get in the field, but 
how you respond to people. You can look at it as a sort of corrective mentalization. So mentalization-based therapy is very big now, this idea of recapitulating and helping clients get through like poor uh caregiver reactions to their emotions and learning that your emotions don't have to be scary because parents can react like if a kid's having a tantrum they can teach the kid oh emotions are scary by how they react so a therapist will teach a client oh no you're talking about mortality that's scary and they reinforce that fear of death they reinforce the phobic response yeah yeah that's right that's right but it's a difficult balance to strike of course it is we have to take it seriously yeah 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 so it's a it's one of the it's one of the big problems in therapy um, so it's one of the challenges of therapy, I would be a better, better way of putting it. That's I think sure. we need more time. And I think graduate schools need to spend more time on those kind of issues. The theoretical orientations definitely deserve time, but there's such a grab bag that you get and you don't get a lot of time on, on any of them really in modern graduate programs. So it's like you have to focus on the practical issues too and, mm-hmm. and more, more of an emphasis on that. And, and so a lot of your work comes out of that and, and addresses that, which is what's great. So for therapists mm-hmm. out there, there's a lot of great postgraduate education, yes, and stuff that, that counts for continuing education credits and all that. But work by fellow therapists that are in this format, especially in story format, can be very easy to digest and extremely dense but, and that's uh-huh. why I love the story format that you, that you've come up with that you got as an idea from talking with your daughter. Yeah. People absorb that so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's an unusual thing to do. And actually the thing I'm working on at the moment is a graphic novel. Yes. Like, talk about that. Like, you want me to talk about it? It's, it takes a long time to do a graphic novel. Of course like it does. Yeah. Like, so it takes a while to write the script and then it, it's a long time to get all the artwork done. So we're still kind of about halfway through it, but it, it, like a lot of things, I, I, I stumbled into it a little bit by accident. Um, so I was approached by an artist and we did some web comics and then a, a, a publisher asked me to do a, a graphic novel and then it kind of took off from there. So that it's about Marcus Aurelius and his life and philosophy. And, I, you know, I don't, it's an odd thing because um, when you turn something into images, you suddenly kind of really view the story and the, the, like the significance of the things that are happening in a, a very different way. One of the odd things about the meditations of Marcus Aurelius is that it, there's, a, there's an oddity about the way that he writes it. So Marcus hardly ever mentions um, specific, he actually does mention a lot of specific individuals in his life, mainly at the, at the beginning of the book. But he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't really talk about concrete events that are going on around him. Like no. he lived through this plague that killed 5 million people and went on for over a decade. And he mentions it in passing once in what seems like quite a kind of glib, not a glib, but a bit of a dismissive way. Yeah. He says, yeah. Terrible, terrible as the plague is, what's even worse is moral corruption in Rome. And that's all he has to say about it, really, like, at least directly. You know, but then you could argue that everything else he says is kind of indirectly related to living through the time of the, the Antonine Plague. And the wars he barely mentions as well. So he tends to almost, you'd forget he's the Roman emperor because he seems to be talking about kind of banal sort of petty things. He says in the most famous passage of the meditations, every morning when you go up, tell yourself you're going to meet petty, uh, trifling yeah, you know, deceitful, dishonest, like ungrateful people. And I think most people when they read that, they kind of naturally relate it to their own lives and they think, yeah, that, you know, that guy in the corner shop's always a bit rude, like, 
like when I'm like, asking them questions or whatever, you know, like I don't like the I don't like my next door neighbour or whatever stuff like that. I don't like I'm not getting on very well with my sister-in-law at the moment, you know. And you kind of forget that Marcus is maybe the biggest betrayal in Marcus's life would be a civil war um, by one of his longtime friends, his most senior general in the in the east, Avidius uh, Cassius. Um, who instigated a civil war that threatened to tear the whole empire apart. So he's right. talking about betrayals, or probably, at least some of the time, on a, a world historic scale. But you, you really lose sight of that when you're reading the meditations, because he never mentions it. Right. Like, he speaks in a kind of abstract way and in a very kind of uh, personable, sort of down-to-earth uh, manner. But then when you try and relate that to his life, and you, especially if you're trying to illustrate it, it takes on... A very different meaning you you know if you just suddenly pan out you imagine this guy writing the stuff down in the book and then you imagine the camera just panning out uh, yeah. and you see the city around him and cartloads of dead people being taken out like from the the antonine plague you know and the like the corruption and the backbiting and these huge armies that were invading the north of the empire hundreds of thousands of people like men involved in, in, in this uh, in this war raging along the Danube and stuff. And then you think, of course, the stuff that he's saying here has to do, maybe some of it does have to do with the fact that he doesn't like one of his relatives that much, right? But a lot of it must have to do with these huge world historic events that are like swirling around him. Um, and so when you, when you actually then try and illustrate it, it, it changes the meaning. Now, in some ways, I think, you know, its greatest strength is its greatest weakness. The fact that it's kind of abstract allows people to project themselves into it yes. and identify with it more. But also when you zoom out and you kind of imagine what these things meant to Marcus, it, it, it kind of gives you a different perspective on it. And it allows you maybe to get a bit more meaning out of it. You know, you can, if you can go between these two perspectives, because now you can see things in a more concrete way than they perhaps came across when you are reading the book in isolation and you, you know, when you imagine some of the events that are going on around them in relation to the remarks that he's making, like it really drives home. I think if anything, it really sells the idea that these strategies were pretty serious. Like he's not mucking about, you know, like he, he's dealing, um, Marcus must've felt his own mortality all the time. Like he was surrounded by death. And so when in that book, when he talks over and over about coming to terms with his own mortality, it's not a kind of, uh, you know, abstract, uh, you know, scholarly thing. Like, uh -uh. you know, no. he, he suffered from, he nearly died several times. You know, he watched many of his friends die. He lost half of his children. Um, he had about uh, 12 or 14 children and about half of them died before he did. Yeah. Um, he must have felt that the plague or, or warfare could have taken him at any time. So suddenly you, it gives these things an added emphasis and significance, I think, when you try to visualize what was going on around them. Absolutely. So you're, you're going to take a view from above mm -hmm. with the comet, which is like the exercise of taking the view from above. You're going to pan out and see the wider scope. How yeah, but, appropriate. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the other aspects of stoicism, we've talked about this idea that it's not things that upset us opinions about them and there are many elements to stoic therapy and philosophy but another one is this panning out this view from above thing and you know one of the reasons that's so intriguing is that we know that when people suffer from anxiety and to some extent from depression and anger as well there's a kind of narrowing 
other attention and a sort of selective thinking that occurs. And the Stoics were conscious of that. You know, they want us to broaden our perspective, both spatially and chronologically. And they believed that when people do that, their emotional responses would be more moderate, more contextualized, uh, you know, less overwhelming. Like, and so that, again, at a philosophical level, in terms of a philosophy of life, you know, generally gravitating towards the bigger picture was a, a safeguard against being overwhelmed by pathological emotions. And it right. made us, it's the closest thing I can think to just pinpointing at something that the Stoics would say very simply that makes us wiser as individuals. They would say the, the view from above makes us wiser, basically. Because any time that we, we forgo that and get too lost in the weeds, we're kind of, you could say we're, we're engaged in selective thinking, but another way of phrasing that would be to say we're committing a lie of omission. You know, you can lie by misrepresenting facts, but you can also lie by leaving crucial details out. Well, the lie of omission is endemic. We all do it all the time. Like, because so human nature requires us to kind of be selective in our thinking to some extent. And the Stoics think, given that this is part of our nature as mortals, we have to be very, very careful about it. You know, we're constantly at risk of deceiving ourselves by leaving out certain pieces of critical information. So we have to fight against that by constantly reminding ourselves. If somebody says something that really pisses you off, for example, like the Stoics would say, you, you need to remember all of the other things that this person has done and view their personality as a whole so you don't take that one remark or piece of behavior out of context. You need to think of it like as something that occurs within a bigger story. Absolutely. I wanted to ask um, what three people you would gather in a room to talk, living or dead. I usually ask that of my guests. and I know that's a very broad question, um, so we can kind of give it a minute, but I've been asking that of my podcast guests like for the past year and and uh, it's always very interesting because you get a grab bag of people of like of different an assortment of different characters that you maybe wouldn't even expect. Yeah, so. gosh, like it, I mean, it, it would be kind of hard to say, but I guess I'd like, you know, obviously I'd, I have to pick, do you know, I have to pick Socrates because he's really one of my heroes and so you right. know, I, it seems like a lazy option in a way, but obviously I'd want Socrates. He'd be a real wild card, right? You know, like yeah. he would, he'd be such a complex figure. And then it would be really interesting to have a modern researcher, like a clinician, so maybe I'd pick, I'd either like pick Adrian Wells or, or Aaron Beck or someone. Nice. Uh, perhaps when I, I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd have to flip a coin, choose between the, like, the two of my favourite uh, experts on cognitive therapy. Yeah. And then maybe would we want Alex of us? We could have a stoic as well. Like, I don't know. Who would we pick? I'd have to go. I think I'd probably pick Marcus just because I'm interested in him as an individual. Like, so I'd have Socrates, Marcus Aurelius, and let's say we'll go for R&T Beck, the founder yeah. of cognitive therapy. I'd like to see what they have to say to each other. That'd be amazing. It's, it's interesting to me that Marcus's son turned out so poorly compared to him. It just shows it's tough to step in the shadows of greatness. And it's like he took his own father's virtue for granted and just didn't care. You know, in the ancient world, the example that people always gave of that was Socrates' kids. You know, but they're so, like, everyone's kind of forgotten about them. But that was the, the, the stereotypical example. People go, well, Socrates' kids were a bunch of idiots and they turned out really badly. Or his students, like uh, Alcibiades, and uh, uh, what was the other guy called? Critias. 
um, like turned out really notoriously badly, even during Socrates' lifetime, they brought a lot of, that was partly why he was executed because of the ill repute that, that two of his students- Corrupting uh, the youth. Brought on him. Yeah, he got blamed for the things that they did wrong. And at the time people said, well, you can't hold him accountable for like, you know, a cut. he had like dozens and dozens of students. And, you know, these are two that didn't really properly assimilate his teachings. So you can't, you can't hold him completely responsible for the way that they turned out. You know, you can lead a horse to water, as it were, but you can't make it drink. And that was the yeah. example people gave. Is like, you can, do, you can have the best teacher in the world, you know, but you're always potentially going to have some wayward students or, or children. And so we, Marcus is some Commodus is the example that comes up today, but um, in, in throughout the ancient world, they would have been more likely to point to Socrates' students and his uh, children in that regard. So yeah, Commodus, there's many things like, you know, I wrote a whole article about that. It's a complicated story. You did. I I would say in his defense, Marcus, um, the big fear like that the Romans had was civil war and the instability. They may have thought, even if Commodus looked like he was, uh, he he didn't have a good character, that might have been more dangerous to, to risk instability in the empire being torn apart by different factions um, fighting over control over it. The fragmentation of the empire, they were very concerned about. Um, so that may have been, they may have thought like, in a sense, a, a bad emperor, emperor is, is better than no emperor at all. Yeah. But at this point in history, we, we, what we don't want is like a bunch of competing generals just tearing the whole thing apart. Um, and, and, you know, like, uh, unfortunately, the people not even the Romans, like who, who in some respects were culturally against us, nevertheless believed in uh, hereditary succession. Like you know, although their culture didn't, the ordinary people in Rome would naturally see Commodus as the heir to the empire. And uh, if Marcus had sidelined him, they would, then he would have uh, always been a cause that rebel factions could have rallied around and threatened to to split the empire. So. Yeah, they're, they're very complicated historical. Of course, story. it is. Yeah, they are. But it's an it's an interesting one, and it's why because of the movie in part, Gladiator. Um, you know, yeah. people uh, people bring it up a, a lot. Like, you know, and the funny thing I'd say about that is, if you think Joaquin Phoenix is bad in the movie, the real Commodus is like portrayed as even worse by the Roman historians. Yeah. They toned him down. Uh, compared to what the like the the Romans uh, historians have to say about him. Wow, you were talking about something that made me think of Robert Greene, mm-hmm. who writes about uh, oh oh the quote from Marcus Aurelius about uh, exercise of imagining people as quarrelsome and petty, and that's that is mm-hmm. that's a helpful thing to kind of inoculate yourself mm-hmm. against to, to recognize okay this is what's going to come up. Um, here's what I, here's how I can respond to that. Um, have you read any, uh, and so, so Robert Greene does a lot of stuff like that with like the 48 laws of power, the laws of human nature. Have you ever read any of his stuff or, or find it interesting? I'm familiar with Robert Greene, but actually I haven't read his book. Well, okay. That's what I need to get around to reading it at some point because people bring it up a lot. I think they probably do because he has different accounts so he laid, you have laid your book out and he's like independently of you of each other, but like the, the usage of narrative ec- expertly deployed to share these stories. Um, that's something that you did with Marcus Aurelius with his life. And then Robert does that with obviously different characters and 
and just uses them to illustrate these mm -hmm. laws. And a lot of them have to do, I think he outright discusses stoicism at some point, but nowhere near mm -hmm. like what you do and doesn't give it the same kind of like, it doesn't pull together the laws in a stoic way, which now that I look at it, they really are stoic. So like, don't fret over things you can't change, show contempt to things that you can't have. Like don't even let give them attention, things like that. They get come across as very classical and, and, and Hellenistic in nature. Right. So I think that that, that paradigm may be activated a little bit by his mm -hmm. stuff. People might think, Oh, well, this reminds me of that. So, um, and Robert Green, I think, was a, an influence over Ryan Holiday, who's a, probably the yes. best-selling author on Stoicism at the moment. Right? Yeah, and uh, that's true. Know, that would be that would be maybe there's some influence there. Where Where is home for you? So you're originally from from Scotland, and you're in Canada now. What prompted the move? Oh, I just moved um, for family reasons. Nice. Basically. Uh, and also, I kind of wanted a change of scene. Well, it's a, f a funny thing because I say to people, you know, I, li I actually lived in England for a long time. And so when I moved to Canada, people thought, oh, this is a big upheaval for you, I would say. But I don't, the, I live in England. It's not my home country really anyway. It isn't, it isn't. You know, I come from, it's part of the UK, but I come from Scotland originally. So I didn't really feel like I was in my own home country for a, a long time anyway. It wasn't that big a, a change for me. To, in some ways, Canada is more like Scotland than uh, than England is, or at least Nova Scotia, the part of the part of Canada that I moved to initially. So I, I've been traveling around a lot recently, and I was in Toronto for a while, and now I'm kind of temporarily. I'm actually in Nova Scotia again at the moment, and then hopefully, like at some point, I'm a bit stranded at the moment. Hopefully, when the pandemic's over, like or things start to return uh, to to normal a bit, and I can travel again. For sure. For quite a while yet. I'll, I'll probably end up being, uh, moving back to Toronto again one day. Yeah, there you go. So do you mind if I ask you a few questions here that people sent us? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what are the finer points and the differences between maintaining composure and suppressing or repressing emotion? So the different, the dichotomy there of repression and just emotional control regulation i guess mm -hmm. i think it comes down to the dichotomy of control and for the stoics the the key thing is to be really clear in your mind about the aspects of emotional experience that are voluntary and the aspects that are involuntary and i mean generally you know like the question is can you stop doing it or could you do more of it it's not that much of a mystery you know, in some ways, maybe it is, but, but like, if for practical purposes, it's not really that mysterious. People can, I think, figure out with a better trial and error what aspects they can, uh, can have some exercise some voluntary control over. And the, the aspects of emotional responses that are automatic or involuntary, um, the Stoics want us to view uh, with apatheia, and that means to, to accept them as neither good nor bad, as just a phenomenon of nature, like the weather. Like, you know, they, they want us to view them as natural and inevitable, as they put it. Mm. And that's what they mean by viewing it as indifferent. I like to say, like, it's just like the weather, you know, it's just a thing that's going on in your body. This anxiety, your heart beating fast and, and stuff like that. And the, the part that the Stoics really want you to, to focus on is, is you could, to put it crudely, is what happens next. Like what you then do in response to those feelings um, and what you say to yourself about them and uh, 
you know, like we said earlier, what we call psychologists and therapists call rumination and worrying yeah. are, are really key voluntary cognitive uh, components. So the Stoics want us to, to take more responsibility um, for perpetuating uh, those feelings. So that's, you know, like a, a, the Stoic response, there's a really... Um, there's a really good story in Stoicism about a Stoic teacher who's caught in a ship at sea during a storm. And I, it would take me a while to tell the whole story, but the gist of it is that a famous grammarian, a teacher of uh, a language was with him, a guy called Olaus Gellius was on a, a ship with this unnamed famous Stoic teacher. And uh, Gellius says to him, after they got to harbour, everyone was freaking out. And he said, you, I know who you are. You're a famous Stoic from Athens. And he said, I noticed, although you weren't running around going, oh my God, oh my God, like freaking out like everyone else, you were shaking and you turned pale and stuff. And the Stoic pulled out of his satchel one of the lost books of Epictetus. And uh, he explained to Aulus Gellius in, in really plain language, he said, well, the Stoic theory is that there are involuntary responses that we should view as reactions that we share with animals um and even a seasoned sailor he says would would be shaking and anxious and we were in the ship and we thought it might sink and we were all about to drown any minute and he says but the thing is not to continue to dwell on it afterwards and not to kind of exaggerate things and make them even worse so don't add more suffering to like the initial reaction by amplifying it and that maybe that's my, my my best attempt to kind of explain what the distinction is. In some ways, it's a subtle distinction, but in practice, I don't think it's usually that difficult for people to tease these two elements apart. No, I think um, it just takes practice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a good way of looking at it is, you know, look at the stuff that you do that happens over time. If it's a process you're engaging in over time, like worrying, then it's you generally you can interrupt it. You can go and do something. What are you going to do if the doorbell rings? Right? Uh, you have to go and answer it. Uh, you can't go, oh, hang on a minute, I need to finish worrying. Uh, you know, and, and normally, I mean, this sounds like a glib thing to say, but one of the big problems people with generalized anxiety disorder have is incipient insomnia. They can't get to sleep. And that's because they kind of feel like they can't set aside their worries, whereas normally people, like they're not allowed to or something. Yeah. Right? But, but normally if I'm lying in bed and I think, oh, damn, you know, I forgot to write this guy a letter or something like that, or there's some, I forgot to pay a bill or something. You know, I might think, oh, I need to kind of deal with this. But I might, then I might think, well, okay, it's one o'clock in the morning. I need to get to sleep. You know, I'll, I'll deal with it tomorrow, right? And so it's normal under certain circumstances to compartmentalize things or to set them aside. That's normal, healthy psychological functioning. I'm putting it like that because, you know, actually, like we were saying earlier, therapists have some misconceptions. And a lot of therapists maybe have this kind of simplistic Freudian idea of repression or whatever, um, you know, this isn't even what Freud meant, but they, a lot of therapists think, well, you can't go around kind of setting aside or suppressing anxieties. That would be a terrible, unhealthy, kind of repressive thing to do. No, that's normal, right? That's what normal people do all the time. I agree with you. Like, you can't function unless you're able to set aside thoughts that are, are, are intrusive. But the trick is not to try and force them down. It's just to go, oh, hi, you know, I'll need to deal with you later. Like, that's what we all do when we're trying to get to sleep at night or we're in, we're in the middle of doing something else. Um, if you're looking after children, by the way, this becomes very obvious because you suddenly think, oh, shit, I need to deal with this thing. And then, you're, you know, but then you've got to deal with your kid. Like, you know, so you think, oh, I'll come back to it. You're always thinking, I'll come back and deal with that later. Yeah. Uh, 
So I would say notice the processes you're engaged with over time and, you know, don't be afraid to postpone responding things. And what you, the thing that you should feel is it's almost like you're saying, you know, I'll be the one who chooses when I think about this stuff. You know, right. I'm not avoiding thinking about it, but I'll decide. I'm not going to allow it to hijack my thinking when I'm in the middle of, you know, doing something else. I'll, I'll come back and deal with this at a time of my choosing. Yeah, it's um, not avoiding it's or compartmentalizing. It's prioritizing. Yeah, yeah. It's not a phobic avoidance. It's yeah, prioritizing. Postponement. It's called the stimulus control method sometimes in research. Like this, the idea that we can pick a time or a place that we'll come back and, and deal with things. And it's a form of cognitive flexibility as well. It's like saying to yourself, you know, like I, I have options. I, I, I'm not going to just fall into a habitual way of responding to these thoughts. So, you know, probably it's kind of trial and error. Like some people figure out over time that they, they have more ability to postpone certain aspects of their thinking and then the other aspects of their thinking are more automatic but they're usually yeah. fleeting like you know they may be recurring so things that keep popping into your head you may have to think oh there's that thought again hiya like but you know i'm a bit busy i'll do with you later like yeah. we all have automatic thoughts but people with anxiety disorders tend to get more fused with them than normal so yeah that's my slightly convoluted way of trying no that's to, great is a it's a delicate thing, though. How do we tease these two things apart in practice? So sorry there isn't a really neat cut and dried answer to that. No, that was good. Um, something I would, I would want to ask is, now that I'm thinking of it, I wanted to, to ask you, is there anything that you have taken from psychoanalysis and into your own practice or understanding of stoicism or vice versa, where you think stoicism and psychoanalysis could be good together or anything you, you detest about psychoanalysis you just shared a good one like the idea of repression is always a bad yeah. thing yeah i gosh there's not that many things that i take from psychoanalysis to be honest but it was mainly <laughs> i mainly fine. studied freud and like sort of early psychoanalysis so i'm not i'm not that well acquainted with more like modern psychodynamic sure. uh like inclined of all things you know there wasn't that much really that that i took from from klein or rd lang the existential, the existential therapists and stuff as well. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are things, but they're probably little weird kind of obscure nuggets. I'll tell you a, little, a weird random thing. At first I thought, when I was researching the relationship between stoicism and therapy, I thought, well, it's obvious that stoicism is related to CBT. And I thought, I can't really find much precedent for psychodynamic approaches in classical antiquity. There's not, there doesn't, I mean, there's dream interpretation. Right, I mean, that's the only thing that I can kind of find that might resemble a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic approach a bit. And then one day I had a bit of an epiphany um, and I suddenly went, there is something. I'll tell you what there is in, class, in, in ancient societies that, that resembles a kind of psychodynamic approach. They used to talk to their ancestors. Like, so people would go to temples um, and they would go through these elaborate rituals. They'd make sacrifices, they'd maybe fast, they'd maybe even take drugs. Um, and then the, the priests would bring them to a cave or something, and uh, they'd uh, see the ghosts of their ancestors. And I thought, that's kind of psychodynamic in a sense. Like, they clearly feel the need that they have to work through unfinished business with uh, like some of their family members. And I guess that was part of what was going on there. So if you really wanted, you could compare some of the stuff that happened in the mystery religions maybe 
um, and in some of these temples to, to you know, and the, the, the dream interpretation stuff with aspects of early psychodynamic therapy. Um, but it took me a while before I realized that. I thought, other than the dream stuff, I can't see much connection. I thought, they did that thing where they talked to their dead ancestors. That's psychodynamic. Freud would have loved that. It is. I don't remember him writing. I don't remember him writing about it actually, but probably not. Yeah. I mean, just the idea of the id being the appetite and like the ego being. Like, I think some of Aristotle's understanding of the psyche got somewhat close, but he would have had a different prescription for. Sorry, what... I'm going to tell you. You reminded me of my favorite psychotherapy joke. You know, like there's not many psychotherapy jokes, right? Right. Do you, how many? Do you, there's not that many. How many do you know? Oh man, probably not. Not many off the top of my head. I was going to say, um, my, you, we were talking about supervision earlier, and someone asked me how to define supervision. And I, I, I remember um, we were in a class or something. They said, "What is supervision?" And I said, "It's like normal vision, only better." It <laughs> <laughs> was kind of lame, but that was that's one of them. But my other one's better, but it's really obscure. Only people that know about psychotherapy get this joke. So. Um, Freud goes into a bar and he says to the barman, um, could I have a, a, a pint of uh, Guinness for my, uh, for my ego? And uh, uh, could I get a, a, a shot of whiskey for my superego? And the, the barman, because he knows a little bit about psychodynamic uh, theory, he says, well, what about your head? And Freud says, nothing for him, thanks. He's driving. <laughs> Ed, it's the seat of the drives. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> That's really, really good. I like that. But I, I know, um, you know, how many light, uh, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to want to change. Has to really want to change. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's awful. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of cringe-worthy therapist jokes. That's funny. So one of your answers about emotion really dovetails with another question that that we got, which was how to experience richness in life and true emotional connection in a stoic way. And now I think the person who asked that probably would benefit. Oh, from that's one of the questions. Aurelius. Yeah. Yeah. He felt. Gosh. Richness. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, there is an answer to that. And I think I wrote an article that talked about the uh, kind of cultivating positive emotions in stoicism. Marcus Aurelius talks. Um, let me remember. He told you, I think he gives like three different strategies for for doing this um i mean essentially um like all right let me explain it in a slightly systematic way so for the stoics stoicism is a very systematic philosophy and it tends to revolve around a fourfold or a threefold structural uh, distinction and like a lot of their ideas revolve around this basic framework like the four cardinal virtues um and so for the Stoics, part of the philosophy is that they think of us as having a, a relationship that, on three levels. Uh, we relate to ourselves. Uh, we relate to pe other people. Um, we relate to the external world. Right? And then this is kind of like similar to a concept that you find in Ellis and in, in Beck's theory of depression as well, incidentally. The cognitive triad, like uh, Beck has this early idea that, that's a little bit like this. So the, the Stoics think of a lot of the things that they're doing in terms of these three different levels. And so in terms of your relationship with yourself, the Stoics think that you should focus your attention on your own capacity for wisdom and virtue. Right. Um, so by kind of really kind of cherishing 
um, like the best potential that resides within yourself, the capacity, even if it hasn't been actualized. You know, so they want us to kind of forgive ourselves for our flaws, recognize our flaws. You mentioned earlier this idea, and I did as well, like of uh, every morning tell yourself you're going to meet ungrateful people and so on. Marcus also says that whenever you get angry with someone else, you should pause and ask yourself whether you don't have the same character flaws yourself or maybe in a kind of disguised form, you know, it, like that's kind of like reversing projection or owning pro projections in a way. Um, so he says, well, you should stop and ask yourself, like, do you not lie sometimes? Like, and that will moderate your anger with the other person. Absolutely. So we, we recognize our own flaws, but we also kind of try and identify our own character strengths. So like in positive psychology, and this idea of working on character strength, the, the, the stoic concept of virtue is a bit like that. We should really spend time contemplating our strengths, like in thinking about the, the positive potential that resides within us and, and try to actualize that more. So the, the stoics think that we should take pleasure, like gratification, like fulfillment from that. They think also that in terms of our relationships with other people, we should put greater emphasis than normal on trying to identify the virtues in other people, even our enemies, like, and acknowledge their flaws and their objectionable behavior, but also try to identify what's praiseworthy and worthy of emulation in, in other people. And they think people are kind of lazy about that. It requires a bit more effort to do that. But they said it's one of the most, for, Marcus at one point says that one of the most gratifying things psychologically is just to kind of really spend time thinking about the aspects of other people that you most admire. And one of the meditations, you can actually see him doing that. So later on, he says, um, he talks about this as a strategy. Like he says, oh, it's a good thing to do this. But we, can, we have a whole chapter watching him do it as well, where he systematically lists all the qualities he admires. He lists 17 different people. And then the other thing, which is lovely, because it's really nuanced. He says to himself this, one of my favorite quotes in the meditations, but talking about external events, he, uh, in general, uh, the fate that befalls us in life, our relationship with the universe as a whole. Um, Marcus says, people um, typically imagine the presence of things that are absent, that they desire. And he says, this is, this is painful. Like it, it causes us to, to feel um, that we're deprived of things. So we're constantly imagining, what if I had this? If only I had that. So he said, you're imagining the presence of things that you know aren't, aren't real and that you're kind of torturing yourself by doing that. And he said, it's better to do the opposite and imagine the absence of things that you do have. And then the, mm. the feeling that that instigates is gratitude. So, you know, during the pandemic, for example, you might think, well, we've got Netflix and central heating and refrigeration and stuff. Like, imagine what it was like in Marcus Aurelius's time where you didn't have any of these things and you were stuck in the middle of a plague. You know, and like just spending, like, but again, he, said, he thinks you have to make an effort to do that. It doesn't come naturally to most of us. So you need to sit down and remind yourself to just pause and that what would it be like if I didn't have some of the friends that I depend on? What would it be like, you know, if I, if I didn't have some of the, like, the, the things around me? And he says, you shouldn't do this in such a way that you become, you place too much value in these things or you, you kind of become too dependent on them, but rather that you give yourself an opportunity to experience gratitude for them. And the Stoics also say you, we should view all of these things as not being our possessions, but as being on loan to us, like, so that we're prepared, we're not surprised if they're ever taken away from us again, we have to give them back. And they said, actually, you know, the, the bigger picture, the Epictetus repeatedly tells his students that you should imagine your whole life is on loan. 
like and it's a you should be grateful for it. it's this amazing gift that you've got but you don't expect that it's going to last forever so you you you, know, you make the most of it while you do have it and uh, you you know you remember to experience gratitude and that i guess segues into another theme in stoicism which allows us to kind of flourish and, and enjoy life fully which is their idea that we should be more grounded in the present moment and more appreciative of that and it's a major theme in the meditations of Marcus Aurelius is learning to, to pay more attention to, to the here and now and experience more gratitude uh, so, for, yeah. in that respect. That's amazing. And so that the, the question of how to experience emotion and stoicism, that's such a great um, well-rounded answer because it's how you can experience negative emotion, but then the positive as well. Stoicism is not anti-happiness. No. It's, it's pro-joy, I would say, because joy refers to more of a more of an overall predisposition than just a fleeting happiness state. Like well, let, me, let me say something about that, actually. You know, it's, this seems, people even think I'm joking when I say this, right? I, I, used to, I often say to people at conferences and so on that I think of stoicism as a philosophy of love. And I, like, I mean that, literally. It really is a, a, a philosophical attempt to conceptualize the sort of love um, Marx really says at the beginning of the meditations that the Stoic ideal is to be free from unhealthy emotions and yet full of philostorgia, which means a, a particular type, type of love, like parental love, a brotherly love, uh, you could say. There's not, it's not an easy term to translate from Greek, but it's a bit like what we would mean by brotherly love. So right. he said the, the, the ideal is to be full of a kind of a healthy emotion and it's a kind of like affection um you know uh, 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 not a possessive or like a, a non-attached affection that the stoics talk about and throughout the stoic writings the odd thing is people for people to read the stoics and think that it's an unemotional philosophy i think they all those people should go back and reread the whole thing particularly reread marcus aurelius and look out for the number of times that he actually refers to positive emotions because he frequently refers to love gratitude cheerfulness joy like there are you know throughout the whole book he's talking about positive emotions but somehow people tend not to notice that the first time they read the stoics yeah brilliant no that's exactly right so one of the reasons and listeners may be like, what, why are you not asking about the pandemic? Well, you did a whole video on your own about, about it, and I didn't want to replicate all of that. So for, for listeners out there, I'll provide a link to that too, because on your YouTube channel, you discussed that Aurelius was dealing with a plague. So go read about the Antonine plague. That's yeah. in how he dealt with it. So that's why I didn't go heavy into that. So somebody asked, in the past three to four months, would you have changed anything? Would those months have changed anything you wrote or would you have added something? So that no. kind of, I think they're probably getting at that. So, I mean. They haven't really changed it. I'll tell right. you, here's the odd thing, right? And maybe this is a stoic thing. That, well, how people keep saying to me, how would the stoic cope with the pandemic? And I've written articles, given loads of interviews, done loads of interviews. Like, it's, yeah. It's getting kind of done to death at the moment, right? And of course, yeah. Talking about this, right? But the weird irony of this, on the one hand, I'll, I'll qualify this by saying it is true that the Stoics have lots of advice about how to cope with it. But, you know, their main piece of advice would be nothing's changed, right? Right. Like, this is, right. You, sh you should have prepared for this in advance, like, would have been their, their advice. And actually, now what you should be doing is, in addition to coping with it, preparing for all of the other, like, terrible things that would potentially happen in the future in a philosophical manner. 
Like, maybe there's going to be a worse pandemic than this in five or ten years' time, for all we know. And actually, this probably isn't the worst thing that's going to happen. To, I hate to break it to you guys, like, you know, but the, the pandemic, for 99.9% .9 of the people watching this video, this pandemic's probably not the worst thing that's going to happen in their life. Right. Like, it just happens right. that we're all a bit preoccupied with it in the news, right? And it, for some people, it's going to be a terrible thing. It might, it might, for many people, they're going to die as a result of it. But, you know, for the majority of us, there are worse things that we're going to have to face in life. Um, and the Stoics want us, you know, to, you know, to look at the bigger picture, to prepare in advance for things. They're, they're more concerned about, you know, like, dealing with the deeper question of our own mortality and also you know taking the longer view and preparing for things further in advance so people that have already been working like with the stoics when the pandemic broke out they'd already mentally rehearsed loss like dealing with their own mortality and stuff so they were already prepared for it it's when people say well how can you be resilient in the middle of a pandemic you say hang on a minute by definition it's you're a johnny come lately like, because resilience is, you know, like really about preparing in advance for things. Um, that said, there are like coping strategies that, that, that people can learn in the middle of a situation. But the main message of stoicism is in, in times of peace, prepare for war, as it were, you know, because there's going to be stuff that's coming down the pipe. Like, so the wise man or the wise woman knows that. Like, and they know, like, to prepare for it long in advance. Play the long game. That's right. Mm -hmm. a quite one of the so finally a question was: Has the Stoic how has Stoic mindset changed in the last five hundred years, if at all? Which I mean, how has the Stoic mindset? Yeah, I don't think it has. And well, I mean, not like, in that. I always feel this is a bit of a kind of like. Well, this is this is the kind of standard answer in a way, is that you know um, people aren't as into Stoic theology and physics anymore obviously mm -hmm. like nobody worships Zeus anymore uh like not many people i mean to be i did actually meet a guy once that did worship Zeus and did all the rituals and stuff like that like but he uh, i don't know if he sacrificed bulls but like he <laughs> wore the robes and things they had a little shrine yeah but the, the, the the people don't really um uh follow the the, the theological side of of Buddhism, they don't talk about Zeus. The Stoics had a more metaphysical interpretation of those Greek and Roman rituals, um, but not many people are pantheists anymore. I should say, speaking a little bit more seriously about it, some people are, um, but generally we see Stoicism now more in terms of the ethics and the psychology, apart from the metaphysics and theology. Um, but the community of modern Stoics consists of Christians, Muslims, people who are pantheists. And, and also agnostics and atheists. Although the interesting thing is, the majority of them seem to be agnostics or atheists. So although it was um, a philosophy steeped in, in religion to begin with, it now it seems particularly to attract people who are looking for a, a secular alternative to Christianity or a Western alternative to Buddhism is, is how they tend to put it. So that's changed. Um, and I, I still think we can draw things from the theology. I mean, I, talk, I do talk a lot about um, Stoic, uh, you know, someone asked me recently why, why and how to think like a Roman emperor. I never, they said, you never mention theology or the gods. And so I did, you know, I, we now have the, by the wonder of technology, I can do control F. Like, and I said, apparently I mentioned the gods, um, like in some form or other about, I think it was like 40 or 50 times. 
in the book. So I do, I do talk about it quite a lot. Although I'll maybe kind of interpret these things more as a, in terms of symbolism or as a sort of metaphor. Right. Whereas the Stoics would maybe have taken it a bit more literally. Although even the ancient Stoics were criticized. They were called atheists during their, their time because oh, yeah. their view of the gods was somewhat less literal and somewhat more metaphorical than, than other Greek and Romans. So, but the, I would say that's probably the biggest difference. Um, you know, and, and then obviously some of the specific values, like I should say, I mean, this seems, there's certain things that seem almost kind of to go without saying, but when people are first introduced to the classics, you know, they, they do obviously have different values, um, around gender, like clearly, you know, the ancient Greek and Romans were far more discriminatory towards women broadly speaking than than people are in the first world are today but that shouldn't come as a big shocker to anyone that's ever read anything about the ancient world right Probably not yeah. it does though people i can't believe how sexist some of these things in seneca are and you kind of think well that's the whole of european history probably most of it anyway is pretty sexist right it's not we all know that like you know like so we don't have to assimilate that that said you know the stoics were also kind of known for being egalitarian and uh, like Socrates before them. Um, this is a big digression, but they were particularly awesome. known for teaching philosophy to women. Uh, epic t- we have Masonius Rufus, one of our other main sources for Stoicism, the teacher of Epictetus. We have two lectures by him that survive today on why philosophy should be taught to girls and why the virtues are the same in men and women. So the, the Stoics were one of the philosophical schools that were most known for, uh, you know, in the ancient world, also it was in the time of Socrates in particular, it was mainly young uh, Athenian noblemen who studied philosophy. And uh, Socrates one was controversial in part because he spoke to philosophy, spoke about philosophy to, to women, not only women, but to, to prostitutes, to uh, slaves, uh, to foreigners, immigrants. Uh, and men and women, people from all what rich and poor, you know, uh, all sorts of uh, different people, and that he was known for, you know, teaching philosophy in the agora, out in the in the street, like talking to all sorts of random people, all the riffraff, as uh, it would have been in the eyes of the the Athenians, and and in fact, you know, I should mention this in passing. I think it's important. The the, the conservative traditional view in ancient Athenian culture and Greek society was that, that virtue was a possession of noble birth. And, right. uh, you know, like obviously that, that, that seems like a, a very antiquated view now. But Socrates was in part railing against that. And that was part of the reason that he was a controversial figure, was that he suggested, along with other people at the time, that maybe virtue, if it was cognitive, could be learned. And therefore, women and immigrants and slaves could learn it. Why and that it wasn't the kind of exclu- there wasn't anything kind of inherently uh, associating virtue to to the noble birth. Um, you know, it was it was open to everybody in a sense. And the Stoics carried over that kind of democratic egalitarian aspect of of Socrates' thought. So yeah, but when we read classical philosophy in general, we do have to come to terms with the, the different cultural norms and the different ideas about religion and gender and, and yeah. um, sexuality and slavery and that's a great and stuff point. like that. That's a great point. And as uh, you know, I think and I heard when you talked about 
this with Jules Evans in your interview, which I watched, which that was an awesome one, talking about the use of, of Stoicism and Stoic thought as a substitute within atheism. Um, I, I think, so I was raised in a, in a Christian context and still identify as Christian. I think when you hear about the Stoics having this egalitarian view and how teaching philosophy to women, it's like Christ appearing to women after the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And you get these different parallels where these themes of like bring, right. bring yeah. virtue to the here and now, don't wait for heaven, don't do that. Like the worst part of religion we could say would be this idea of it doesn't matter, what we do now doesn't matter, wait for the afterlife. It's like the Greeks mm -hmm. probably dealt with that in their own mythological context of wait for Zeus to sort it out. No, bring virtue here. I Honestly, there are weird parallels between the story of Socrates and the story of Jesus. You know, I mean, there are many parallels between the, 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 the story of Jesus and other historical figures, but more, there are more parallels with Socrates than I think people normally appreciate. And Ooh. one of them is this fact that he, like, he associated with prostitutes and, yeah. you know, he, yeah. he accepted them as, as disciples or, or students. Um, you know, and obviously also, you know, he was put on trial and uh, executed them became a martyr and you know stuff like that. which famous historical figure accepted prostitutes controversially as students was put on trial for his belief and executed like and became a martyr as like like there are many things about socrates if you describe them in a schematic way you think yeah it does sound a like a little bit like uh, the new testament story strangely yeah no it's an enlightenment story okay wow that is fascinating so that that bracelet you have is there a story behind that is that like a stoic bracelet or anything no, my girl. Like, no, no, my daughter actually, who's kind of roaming about. Uh, she uh, she made this for me uh, as a present, so I have to wear it when she's here. Like, that's uh, that's wonderful. As a present from her. So as we wrap up here, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned a therapist who you really. Oh, sorry, Adrian. Did I say Adrian Wells? Oh, yeah, Wells. I, who is that? Adrian Wells. He's actually he. So he would be more known in Britain. Gosh, he's like yeah. Oh, Adrian metacognitive Wells. therapy. I just yeah, looked yeah, yeah. Through. Adrian Wells is, um, I think, presumably still at Manchester University, a professor of psychology. That's cool. He, he's one of the leading pioneers of cognitive therapy in the in the UK, um, and you know, a, a proponent of a, because ACT and some of the other third wave therapies, not all of them, but ACT and behavioral activation, and some of those are, are more in the behavioral psychology tradition. Yeah. Um, but yeah. metacognitive therapy is very much in the tradition of cognitive psychology. Right. Um, but it's a third wave approach. So it's interesting and it's very, very much uh, research driven as well. So it says some very interesting, it's, it's very interesting to make a comparison between MCT, metacognitive therapy, and, and some of the maybe the, the bigger, uh, better known third wave therapies that are popular in the States, for instance. But Adrian Wells, I would yeah, very much recommend. I'm a, a huge fan of his work. It's. Um, you know, for anyone that's interested in research-driven approaches, it's really... I, he, I went to a talk by Wells once, and he said, I love it, he said something very kind of bold that struck me. Um, people were asking about Beck's therapy for anxiety. I think at the time, Beck had just brought out his, his kind of revised manual for anxiety. Right. And, and Wells kind of, Adrian Wells said to, to us, uh, it was the days of multi-component therapy are over and he said uh, he goes it just doesn't make sense in terms of having a, a an evidence-based approach like you have to be able to isolate individual components of treatment in order to test 
whether they work or not and eliminate redundancy from your protocols, right? In that sense, the days of multiple. So he said Beck's approach in his textbook is, is, is interesting, but there's like, it's like throw everything at the, at the wall and see what sticks kind of approach. There's right. way too many components in it. And so you don't know what's redundant in it. Like, and this has always been a controversy about Beck's approach. Like his, uh, his treatment of depression, you know, there's a story there about the development of behavioral activation. So I'm going to say this actually, you know, I'll spend a, a minute or so because I, 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 I feel there's an injustice here. Yeah. Right. Beck's seminal book on cognitive therapy, nowhere in that entire book does he mention Peter Lewinson, who developed behavior therapy for clinical depression a few years earlier. And Beck's approach is a multi-component treatment that consists of activity scheduling, um, disputing uh, automatic thoughts, and then digging deeper and addressing the, the core beliefs. And then, you know, other so researchers subsequently did dismantling studies on Beck's approach, and they found that each of those components tested in isolation from the others was as effective as a multi-component treatment. So they said, well, hang on a minute. If the behavioral activity scheduling bit, that's not even vaguely cognitive therapy, right? That, that's straight up behavior therapy. Yeah. It doesn't really have a cognitive component to it. And, and that works as well on its own as the whole treatment manual that Beck published in 1979, right? And they said, so on the one hand, the, 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 the problematic thing about that is that's a behavior therapy. It's not cognitive at all. And then the other problematic thing about it is it, it, it wasn't original. Like it, it, it was already um, developed by a, a behavioral psychologist, like, I don't know whether it was five or 10 years earlier. Um, so we already had like the, like, you know, that this was effective in itself. What Beck added to it works, but it didn't really add anything to the efficacy. And so that's kind of blinded us for decades to thinking, oh, CBT for depression is this multi-component treatment that, that combines activity scheduling and cognitive disputation and stuff. And maybe we already had like an effective behavior therapy. So then you have this third wave approach that we now call behavioral activation. Yes, like is, I know of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, which is one of the leading well. evidence-based approaches for, for depression and really is a revitalized version of a, of, of a treatment that's been around for uh, like, um, how long is that now? Like, like 50, 40. Jeez. Or 50 years, right? Like, and, the, you know, like, it, it's odd. Um, it was forgotten about, like, and because and, Beck's work kind of obscured it. But I think the odd thing about it, and maybe it was just kind of some oversight or whatever, but, like, it does strike me as, as a, a, something of an injustice in some level that, that in Beck's treatment manual that this guy's work is never even mentioned. Um, because things like that, not citing sources as comprehensively as one might, really, it, looking back on, you know, I said at the beginning of this interview, one, I was a bit of a nerd about the history of psychotherapy. The history of psychotherapy is a mess, right? It's embarrassing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a it mess yeah. of things being forgotten about and then rediscovered like half a century later. Um, and progress being held back by a half a century at a time um you know like huge missteps like it's appalling like the the russians for example like i mentioned earlier paul jabba was paul jabba was doing cognitive therapy in the 1910 1920 yes. 
right? And then everyone got into Freud and forgot about that. And then, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, they went, oh, maybe we should be doing this after all. Well, right. We could have been doing it for half a century, right? The Russians were doing uh, outcome studies on psychotherapy in the beginning of the 20th century. So the idea that behavioral psychologists kind of came along in the 60s and then suddenly started testing things properly is a, you know, that's only because Freudian psychoanalysis was antagonistic to research and like largely speaking like and and it it was people say oh we we just never got around to doing experiments until the 60s no people were doing research like at the start of the 20th century and then they started they 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 repressed like the activity of researchers in the psychotherapy field and it got blotted out and eclipsed by all the freudian stuff that kind of sneered at that we could have had half a century of ongoing research in psychotherapy if it hadn't have been for like a bunch of these guys sneering at it, like and putting it down. So I, you know, looking back on it, I think that's shameful. And the behavioral activation as an approach is one of the most important approaches today. We could have been working on that for half and developing it for half a century, right? If it wasn't for the fact that when Beck brought his treatment manual out, he didn't really fully acknowledge that that already existed as a treatment in its own right. Right. A hundred percent. And on the positive note, I would say, funnily enough, one of the, the people who's not is kind of trendy these days, Albert Ellis, the yeah. other major pioneer of cognitive. There are many things you could say about Ellis that, you know, that especially at the time, people, you know, he was a love-hate figure or whatever. But I'll tell you what, Ellis was much more conscientious, you know, about crediting other sources than, than many other authors are. You read Ellis's books, they're full of references to historical figures in the field of psychotherapy. Like in a lot of really obscure, people like Kaczynski, he mentions a lot, like that I kind of forgotten about now. But Ellis is much more keen to say there were guys doing things similar to this before me. And, you know, I think it's a shame when therapists come along and act as if they've just invented something out of the blue. That happens far too often. And then the students that are learning it are oblivious to the fact that there might be decades or more of existing literature and research on this uh, subject. It's toxic to the progress of the field as a whole when people do that. A hundred percent it is. So who's Kaczynski, the therapist you just mentioned? Kaczynski. He was, oh, Kaczynski. Uh, who is that? The guy, Alfred Kaczynski, was, uh, developed this movement. He wasn't a therapist. He was an engineer and a mathematician who wrote a book called Science and Sanity in the... Was it when did that come out in the thirties or forties or something? Oh yeah, okay. Oh, and he uh, he started this movement in America called General Semantics. Okay, and it weirdly it influenced science fiction authors a bit. Oh. And Albert Ellis, they developed this use of language where they thought we should avoid using the verb to be and try and use a wider range of verbs and speak more in the active voice. Yeah. One of the things that that actually led to is that there there are little traces of it that every therapist is kind of familiar with, but they forgot where it came from. Many cognitive therapists talk about clients catastrophizing. Yes. So that would be an example of what people in the general semantics field sometimes call verbing or verbification. So rather than saying this is a catastrophe, you would say I'm catastrophizing it, which makes you see it as a process and to take more responsibility for it as a, an activity. And that, that idea largely originated with Kozybski. And Ellis is quite transparent about the fact that, that he was into general semantics and, and uh, he took that idea and assimilated it into 
REBT, REBT from, yeah. from the general semantics field. And Ellis talks about, about how he was influenced by Gestalt therapy and of course, yeah. the psychodynamic therapists and stuff as well. And, you know, but then you read books by other cognitive behavioral therapists and you think, how come they never mention any earlier psychotherapies? You know, like, like they, they've just pulled these ideas, like ACT, for example. Sometimes the ACT writers do acknowledge that some of their techniques, for instance, are taken from Gestalt psychotherapy. Like, but there are definitely other things that they do that their students would never realize have, a, you know, have been around for a while in the therapy field. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Gestalt therapy is very interesting because when you talk about speaking to your ancestors, there's the idea of unfinished business, right? An empty chair big. technique and things like that. Like yeah. that would resemble um, this kind of thing. But, you know, mindfulness is this kind of trendy thing in therapy now. But, you know, the, they didn't use that term. That, that term only became popular in the 1990s. Um, it's surprisingly recent. Like, you know, people hardly used the word mindfulness before that. Not to, didn't use it much to refer to, to Buddhism and, and Eastern thought. Like the you know when it was used, it was just used in a, a, a looser sense, uh, you know, to, to refer to self awareness. But you have Gestalt therapy in the night was it nineteen forty again around about nineteen forty I think that Pearls wrote Excite, Gestalt therapy excitement and growth in the human organism. It was surprisingly early, um, and it was. Uh, you know, that's a book very heavily influenced by Buddhist meditation techniques. And they don't, I don't remember them using the word mindfulness much. They tend to talk about awareness training. Um, but many of the mindfulness techniques that, well, so in the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, they do, don't they eat a raisin or something with mindfulness as one of their exercises? That's straight up in that book that was written in the 40s or whatever. Yeah. You know, therapists have been doing things like that for ages, like for over half a century. But it's like, you know, it just kind of comes out the blue again. Like, well, we just invented this amazing therapy technique. You know, like, that's a shame because, you know, people could benefit, if you're into mindfulness, like, you definitely benefit from reading a lot of the, like, the uh, Gestalt therapy literature that describes basically the same techniques. Um, you know, and all the kind of clinical wisdom and experience that those guys accumulated from doing these things with thousands of clients over decades, that just gets all ripped up and thrown in the bin when we pretend that things are new and start again from scratch. So, you know, again, I mean, I could suppose you could say the same thing about stoicism and CBT, that if we ignore the, the philosophical heritage and the history, then we don't, we miss the opportunity to learn from it and benefit from it. That's absolutely accurate. Yeah. When, when we, in, in people, like you said, go back to Buddhism, I mean, in DBT and in mindfulness-based uh, stress training and in all these different modalities, it goes back to Eastern traditions. And there's nothing wrong with that inherently at all. But when we neglect that there's a Western tradition as well, there is a disservice there to patients that, we're not explaining, well, here's a heritage of people who used this. And what's really interesting to me is because you shared this book in your, in that article that we've been talking about of, of Stoicism as CBT, um, the book by that uh, military leader, James Stockdale, the thoughts of a philosophical fighter pilot. There seems to be a real tradition of Stoicism as something that's really used in the trenches, literally that can be good for people who are like, oh, this isn't going to help me with stress. Uh, well, maybe it will. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you know, the strange thing is that this is why it's useful to look at it. You know, like, because Victor, Fra that reminds me of the reason yes. that people are drawn to Victor Frankl's book is they go, well, does this stuff really work? Well, you know, it's the power of like um, social, social proof, right? So, yes, 100%. Client, like one of the disadvantages of individual therapy is the therapist will sit there and explain techniques to the client. And even if it's kind of client-centered and stuff, if, there's, if it's skills-based, you'll be teaching clients techniques. And so the main reason, the main complaint that new therapists have in supervision, you know, I was, for many years I was a clinical supervisor. And right. the most common thing for the, the students to say is, well, my clients aren't doing the homework, right? Yeah. And this is the cliche thing, right? And what, like, what the main, when you say, why, don't, why didn't you do the homework? And the clients will usually say, oh, I forgot or I didn't have time. But what they really mean is that they didn't actually believe that it was going to help them, right? That's a euphemism. When they say, I didn't have enough time, what they mean is, like, I don't really I believe make it time. Like, Because you would have made time if you really believed it was that important that it would work, right? So they, but if you're a therapist and you describe techniques or clients read them in books, it lacks social proof. And one of the advantages of doing group therapy is I remember once I was doing a, a group and we gave everyone a CD to listen to just as a, an example right. for like we've just relaxation techniques or whatever. And so like most of the people in the group were like, yeah, whatever, you know, I'm not going to use that. Like, you know, I've, like, I've tried relaxation things before, it didn't work or whatever. And then the next week we came back and a bunch of them were like, yeah, I forgot to use it or whatever. And one of the people in the group was like, it's amazing. It's like the best sleep that I've ever had. You know, I, like I use this all the time now. Like, it's just like, it's fantastic. And then the following week, like everybody had started using it, right? Because when I say it, it doesn't count for anything, right? But if somebody because <laughs> I'm just a therapist, what would he know, right? But right. the, when somebody else with the same problem uses it, it almost embarrasses you into thinking, geez, I suppose I better give it a try then. And that happens, particularly that happens with chronic pain clients, right? Oh, they please speak like, about that. Yeah, because yeah. I've like, got, those are tough cases. Yeah. For some reason, more than anyone, like chronic pain clients are, are, are often kind of have this kind of like sense of uh, cynicism or like about, techniques that they're learning right so they think well, i've tried everything and nothing works right and you know that this isn't strong enough medicine for me it's not really going to help my problem but if you have a bunch of them like you know I'm, I'm, why i've always been put really in favor of, of of group approaches like if uh if you have a bunch of people and one person uses the technique and then reports that it works it's like a domino effect like everybody yeah. else suddenly is persuaded by it because they think well he's just like me and he used it it's modeling, like, coping from other people. And the, yeah. the expert, like, uh, relationship that the therapist has, and it, a lot of people don't realize is inherently antagonistic to that. Like, a lot of people don't really trust advice from experts. They believe that the therapist has a sort of vested interest or whatever. Like, there's an inherent kind of skepticism. So they think, well, you're going to, like, tell me these techniques. And what would you know? You don't have chronic pain. And you're like, you know, but if someone else with the same problem has it, it's a much more powerful social proof. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So I, I think this is a, you know, a, a massively underestimated part of uh, of uh, of therapy, especially with chronic pain. It a hundred percent is. What have you found most? You talk about cognitive distancing with that. What have you find most effective with chronic pain? Um, actually, cognitive distancing seems to work really well. Um, yeah. The view from above, 
and you know people like doing that it's easy that seems to work well for people for some people relaxation techniques because there's a stress pain cycle and i yes. like i have to even qualify that now because certainly when i was training still in cognitive therapy it was like relaxation techniques almost a dirty word like a lot of the the more third wave therapists were, were, were would immediately go well relaxation is a uh, a safety seeking behavior and it's like uh, you know like we, we don't want clients to do that because it's suppressing their anxiety and stuff but there's a ton of evidence that shows that like the potential benefits to, to relaxation used strategically in therapy um you know so we shouldn't we also people are sometimes much too hasty to throw out techniques that actually have a valid evidence base you just got to be careful about the way that you use some of these techniques and the client, any technique can be abused by clients. That's true. You know, you have to use them judiciously, but relaxation techniques, because some people who have chronic pain are physically tense and, and often their pain is exacerbated by physical tension. So yes. for like back pain and tension headaches and things like that, like sometimes they, you know, learning to relax, like it can be extremely beneficial for, for people. Um, and, and also you've got to kind of like choose your battles you know, like some people find certain techniques much easier to learn than others. And there'll be certain clients, you know, some techniques work better in a group setting than others as well. Some techniques work better online than others. You know, relaxation techniques are really easy to teach as well. So right. techniques are hard to do, like, and they become harder in a group or like in an online setting. And then there's, you generally, in my experience, more behavioral techniques are often easier to do with a, a, a group or online or remotely. And cognitive techniques tend to be a little bit easier if you've got someone's time one-to-one -one in a flip chart and, you know, like some of these tools that you can use to get into the nitty-gritty with them. Um, so that would, uh, there's a time and a place for, for giving people even just recordings to listen to. You know, that can be easy for certain people that, that might struggle with more, uh, more demanding uh, therapy skills. Wow, absolutely. That's absolutely accurate. So re remembering the definition of this is something I think will be helpful for people to remember to keep a kind of a, a short understanding of stoicism in mind is that the, the term stoipoical or pointed, po excuse me, painted porch, uh -huh. like that's like to me the middle way between the refuse bin of cynicism where Diogenes lived. <laughs> mm -hmm. and then the 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 pillars of the academy right so you have a porch you have a nice little porch it's not a mansion it's not a dumpster you're making Diogenes the cynic sound like what's his name Oscar the Grouch and Sesame Street a bit I think yes kind of reminds me a little bit of him he does but yeah they, yeah the, the 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 stoics were in a sense kind of occupying this middle ground right the, the right. I mean this is a caricature in a way but the platonic academy was a little bit more academic. It was a little bit more theoretical. Like, and the cynics were like, not exactly what we mean by cynical, but they were a little bit more abrasive. Like, and the, you know, the Stoics thought, well, we can kind of find a middle ground that combines elements from these two approaches. Like the cynics sneered at too much philosophical theory. They thought you guys are way too bookish. You, right. you need to train yourself to improve your character. Um, and they kind of poured scorn on metaphysics and theology and logic and stuff to some extent. And, you know, whereas the, the Platonists thought, no, you need to spend decades like studying the text and, and, and understanding philosophical theories. And the Stoics, I think, basically want to, they have this kind of more balanced position. They think studying these theories can be helpful, but only insofar as it improves your character. 
And they are also, you'll see Marcus, sometimes people say, well, these passages about where Marcus says, throw away your books. Well, Marcus was a highly educated man and he was like, he, he studied the writings of Epictetus very closely, but he was also saying to himself, you know, I've got to be careful that I don't just become too much of a bookworm, right? You know, I don't become too much of a theorist. You know, you need to kind of like treat the theory and the writings as a tool, like it's a means to an end, right? It's not the end in itself. Like you need to keep asking yourself, is reading these books actually benefiting me? Because if it's not, then it's just another vice. Like if I'm just reading, reading and studying and studying, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, is it not becoming a kind of vanity project? Like, and that's what the Stoics are saying really is, you know, that you need to be careful that using uh, education and using reading is kind of like using money. Like you shouldn't treat it as too much of an end in itself. You need to keep asking yourself, is this actually benefiting me or not? Like, and if it's yes. not, then maybe you need to start focusing a bit more on putting it into practice. Constantly reappraising what's working for me, what's not, at the application of the theory. You need the theory, but you also need to update it in real time for what's working and not use it as a kind of a way to escape from living. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So then let's transition to where listeners can find you, what you're working on. You just shared a huge, awesome sneak peek of the, the stance you're taking with the graphic novel of this view of what's going on during the meditations. That's very tantalizing. Where else should people find you and get involved with your work? Well, my website is just donaldrobertson.name. So it's just my name and then right. .com, but .name. And then all my social media stuff is on there and yep. videos and, and online courses that I run. But the other thing I direct people to is the Modern Stoicism website, which I think you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So Modern Stoicism yeah. has been around for about uh, roughly a decade now. It was founded by uh, Professor Christopher Gills, uh, Emeritus Professor of Ancient Thought at Exeter University in England. And Chris Gill put together a multidisciplinary team of classicists and philosophers and psychologists and therapists. And I was one of the founding members. And, uh, you know, together we organize an annual conference. We run online courses. We're running an online course at the moment called Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training, which we use to gather data, research data on stoicism. And we run a, an annual event every year called Stoic Week, which is also online. We also use that to gather research data. And the website itself contains over 600 articles on stoicism from dozens and dozens of different people all around the world. Yeah. So everything, you know, from firemen to school teachers to people going through surgery to people with autism to people with whatever, um, you know, all talking about how they've applied stoicism. You know, there's some really theoretical articles and then a lot of people talking about, you know, the practice of stoicism in particular circumstances that they face in life. So that's one of the most useful resources, and it's all free. Amazing. Okay. Anything you want to add to that? I mean, that's a, we, we covered such a, a gamut of amazing topics that people might not have heard before regarding Stoicism. I think the main thing is just if people aren't really sure, you know, like, I mean, there are books like mine and Ryan Holiday's and William Irvine's and Massimo Pellucci's and Chuck Chacopani yes. are all the modern authors. But, you know, like sometimes people say, well, you know, you could just read the classics. And, you know, I'm all in favor of that. I, I would absolutely say to people, go and read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Generally, people kind of have an easier time if they read more modern translations. 
Um, so that would be Gregory Hayes or Robin Hard would be two of the, the most popular modern translations of Marcus Aurelius. And just dive in and read the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. It's one of the most popular self-help spiritual classics of all time. You know, you can't go too far wrong just by reading that. And then if, it, if you like it, you know, then you might want to explore some of the modern books on the subject or go and read Seneca or Epictetus or Cicero afterwards. Um, but that's what, you know, we can talk about it. Like, but, you know, I think ultimately you know, it's good for people to have some exposure to the, the text that we're talking about. And it, I always say to people, I feel like it's like um, if you met someone and they said they were really into Elizabethan drama and, uh, and you said, well, have you ever heard of this guy called William Shakespeare? And they're like, no, I've never heard of it. I've come across that guy before. And you, should, you said, well, you should check out this play Hamlet. Like, apparently it's really good, right? I always feel like that when I'm steering people towards reading Marcus Aurelius because it, you know it's a classic and it survived for 2,000 years for a reason or 1,800 years for a reason um, because it's such a you know almost anyone that reads it will, will find something of value in it so I often feel I'm in this privileged position of just kind of introducing people to Shakespeare introducing them to Marcus Aurelius it's something that it's an easy sell as it were because it's a you know it's such a timeless classic so yeah go and read it like or even if you're a real cheapskate like, you know, I'm a bit being Scottish by nature. It's, you, you, I'm sure you can find a free copy online somewhere. Uh, yeah. you, could, you could get, but uh, the modern translations are usually a little bit more accessible. There you go, everyone. Go check out, well, okay, check out Aurelius, yes, but you've got to read his narrated life through our guest here, Donald Robertson, who I, I heartily recommend this book. It is a page turner. You're going to get a lot of, philosophical and psychological wisdom in a way that is packaged for you to retain in narrative form. So go out and get the book. Thanks for joining me. Cool. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on.